The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Boren. Uh, today's topic is drug repurposing, combination drugs, and the quest to find more effective treatments for a number of difficult cancers. Uh, talking to me today are Peter Malloy and Daniel Tellett from the ASX-listed Race Oncology, which is seeking to commercialise an old cancer drug called uh, Bizantree. Uh, Peter is RACE's Managing Director, and many listeners might remember him as Head of the Flu Drug Developer, Biota. Daniel is the company's Chief Scientific Officer, uh, and and among many other things, uh, Daniel founded the private business Nucleics, which sells uh, DNA sequencing software, of all things, and and is also one of RACE's major holders. Now, Trend itself was developed in the 1980s, when we were all wearing mullets and perms, and the uh, French regulators even approved the drug uh, shortly after uh, those days. Uh, The drug was credited with curing two young French girls of acute myeloid leukaemia, but the drug was never commercialised. now, now, Peter, just, just to start, what, what, why is that so? Because uh, I take it there are about sort of 40 trials across a range of cancers. Yes, that's right, Tim. Uh, there were more than 40 trials, 40 phase two trials, that is. Okay. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and one uh, major phase three trial in breast cancer. Uh, the, you know, I used to uh, work in the pharmaceutical industry before I joined the, uh, the biotech industry. And one of my jobs in the pharmaceutical industry was... Uh, as head of international strategic marketing for Pharmacia, which is now part of Pfizer. And part of my assignment there was to look at our R&D portfolio after a major merger we went through. We actually went through a couple and to decide on those products, those projects, those R&D projects that should be deprioritized and which ones were to go forward. And Frankly, a drug like Byzantine, which was targeting what was a very small market in those days, which was AML, acute myeloid leukemia, Mm. frankly, it would have been deprioritized because that was probably only a five to $10 million market opportunity. So despite the fact that it was approved in France for AML, our understanding is the drug was never sold, never commercialized. And when the sponsor of Byzantine, a company called Ledley Pharmaceuticals, when it was acquired by Wyeth, another American home products and Wyeth, which was uh, another big pharmaceutical company in the US, which had no interest in oncology, naturally the product uh, just disappeared. So I, I suspect that's what happened to it. That's why it was never commercialized. Okay. So, so it fell through the cracks in a uh, merger situation with a the new parent just just not being interested in that field. That's a pretty good synopsis, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. I would actually jump in here if I can and just say from my perspective, it's actually the, the fact that it got as far as it did is a reflection of 
um, how hard the scientists and the doctors within lead lay must have pushed this. Um, from a financial point of view, it never made much sense to develop at the time, but because of the um, very um, high quality of response and the efficacy seen that they must have just really, really pushed it. So sometimes these things get further than they would get purely on a hard dollar basis and they get done almost for uh, altruistic reasons. So, um, but of course that's all changed now. And Peter will talk about that, I, sh- I assume. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, let me just make a couple of follow-on comments there. So the AML market opportunity has grown really out of all proportion to the number of subjects that exist. There are only probably 50,000 potential patients each year with AML worldwide. So it's a very small uh, cancer compared compared with other larger cancers. But what's happened is because of really an intense program of uh, drug development uh, for this disease for which there's been no new treatment in 30 years, but is clearly an important medical need. There's been so much active development that there have been eight new drugs come forward for treating AML in the last couple of years. And uh, the pricing is what is, in part, the big attraction to pursuing this small disease. Some of these new drugs are selling for $250,000 to $400,000 for a course of treatment. Uh, so there's... A, there's The AML market is now a a billion-dollar opportunity and is set to grow to a much larger uh, value. Yeah. I I, I guess the obvious question is uh, that, yes, uh, things are happening and and there there are eight new drugs now. So um, uh, what, what, what therefore, is the potential role for uh, Byzantry? Uh, You're talking about a potential combination treatment, aren't you? So all the new drugs that are coming through are what are called targeted drugs. So they target a particular specific mutation that exists within a particular um, AML patient. And each one of those will target between a couple of percent up to about 10% of all patients at maximum. So unless you're lucky enough to have a, uh, a cancer with a mutation, then these new agents aren't of much use to you. And so at the moment, the majority of patients don't actually have one of these new treatments that suits them. So, um, And the other major uh, area is that bisantrine falls into this category of broad agents, traditional chemotherapeutic agent. They're still the backbone of all treatment. And apart from having a different sort of mechanism of action and so resistance profile, one of the things that pesantrine has is it doesn't damage the heart, uh, which the existing drugs on the market all do. And this is a huge problem in a lot of cancers, but particularly in pediatric, so children. Um, there's a lot of AML uh, patients that have been treated with the traditional drugs um, and their heart's been damaged in the process and they've been cured of their cancer, uh, but they, 10, 20 years later, they're dying of heart failure. Um, and that's something that pesantrine um, doesn't have uh, that the, all the other drugs on the market do have. Yeah, okay. Uh, Daniel, what is the, the mechanism of action? It's basically a DNA intercalator and uh, a topper imerase 2 inhibitor. So it works like traditional chemo, 
Um, so all the chemo drugs that make your hair fall out and make you feel very sick. Um, but all those drugs cause heart damage. Uh, and pisantrine was originally developed as a drug that fell into that same category. Uh, they're called anthracyclines, but that it didn't cause the heart damage. Um, and as a side effect of that, I suspect um, it also works in a different way. So you can have patients that are resistant to the existing drugs. They don't respond at all, but you can give them pisantrine and they do respond. And so that's a... A huge, a huge difference. You can treat patients you can't treat otherwise. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and, and so this is sort of a, a fairly sort of, sort of reasonable subset of, of, of total sufferers, is it? Yeah. Well, in the historical trials, you'd have patients that had either relapsed or refractory, which means they didn't respond at all to the initial treatment, or they the the uh, cancer had come back, and both of those are resistant to the existing drugs. If that either of those things occurred, then you've got resistance is a big problem. So. Um, and about between 40 to 50% of all patients responded uh, to pisantrine in the historical trials. So there's a reasonable uh, response rate in, in patients that are very hard to treat. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, so can, can I just step back um, a, a bit? How did, how did Race uh, get hold of pisantrine in the first place? Yes, thanks, Tim. Pisantrine uh, was really an orphan drug in the sense that no one wanted it. After Wyeth acquired Ledley, the drug literally just disappeared for 25 years. And the original patent on it expired in the 1990s. And all of the intellectual property around it disappeared. So it was essentially a, a, an unapproved uh, uh, generic asset that anybody could have acquired. We acquired it by establishing a new patent position on Byzantine through use patents, formulation patents, and manufacturing IP. We also established uh, control of the asset by obtaining orphan drug designation in the US, which gives you exclusivity in the US, the most important pharmaceutical market in the world, for seven years after the drug is approved by the FDA. So it's almost better than a patent because most patented molecules get to market with possibly only seven or eight years left on their patent anyway. So armed with these two sets of commercial protection, we effectively owned the asset. In addition, we were able to uh, re-register the original brand name that was used um, in the early days by Ledley. So we actually own the original brand, brand name as well, which is Xantrine. So we, so we own everything about uh, Byzantine now, and that seems to be very clear. We've also manufactured the, uh, the drug. And according to our IP advisors, whom we met with uh, two months ago to go through our whole IP strategy, we have a pretty robust patent position. Yeah, okay, okay. And so what's the uh, uh, path, uh, what, what, what's the clinical path from... Uh, from uh, here now in, um, you, you're, you're, you've got a number of uh, trials planned, not not just with AML but uh, but other cancers. That's correct, Tim. We have actually what we're calling the five path plan, which involves a series of five clinical trials, and they will involve trials in uh, AML 
uh, in an indication that we're calling MRD, which stands for Measurable Residual Disease. And this is where bizantrine will be used at the top of the AML, AML uh, treatment regime um, in order to improve the outcomes for people who qualify for uh, bone marrow transplants. Currently, if they're MRD positive, they have a very poor prognosis after uh, bone marrow transplant. But if we can transition them from MRD positive to MRD negative, uh, we can dramatically improve their outcomes. And we, we have clinicians who believe that if we can achieve this, it will be quite a breakthrough. So that's one uh, of the, the five path uh, clinical uh, strategies. Uh, just for going so, so, so MRD basically means that the uh, sort of residual nasties are still floating about the body, floating about the bloodstream uh, post treatment. That's correct. There are still blast cells that are around, and unless you can get those down to an extremely low level, to where there are no blasts left, uh, no blast detectable. Uh, then even if you give a patient a transplant, they still have a very high risk of uh, relapse. Why don't, you, why don't you take over describing the five-path strategy, uh, Daniel? Okay. So the five-path strategy, there's three paths that are in AML. Uh, so one of them we've spoken about, which is this MRD, so minimal residual disease. The other two are in resistant and refractory AML, one in adults and one in children. Both of those are early stage trials, so they're relatively low cost to run, uh, and they use uh, combinations of uh, bisantrine with existing drugs that are now on the market. One of the big differences that's occurred since bisantrine was originally developed back in the 80s is there are now new drugs, and so there are drugs to combine it with for the treatment of AML. So we've gone in, back into the lab, done preclinical work uh, to work out which drugs uh, work together in combination and show synergy. Uh, and we have now have a combination of drugs that we're going to take into the clinic and test. So certainly the preclinical work is very encouraging uh, and we hope to have that uh, um, tested in the, in the clinic. So that's one of the advantages of taking a strategy of uh, looking at these different combinations. The final two, final two pathways are to look at uh, breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Breast cancer is a huge uh, market in itself, so just from a financial point of view, it's very attractive. But also with the original trials, the the patients that were most treated were those that had, well, the, there were more patients treated with breast cancer with bisantrine uh, than there were for AML. Uh, and there was a phase three trial run in the US where the patients that received bisantrine actually lived longer than any of the other drugs that were in that trial. And uh, it, there's a lot of potential there uh, to go back in and actually combine it with modern drugs that have since been developed for breast cancer and see whether we can come up with a combination there that will actually work for breast cancer. And the order of the size of the market there is 20 to 40 fold larger than AML. Uh, and there's a pressing need uh, for a drug like bisantrine that doesn't cause heart damage because particularly in breast cancer, Many of the patients are a bit younger than the average cancer patient. So there's, it's very common for breast cancer to be in 40s or early 50s to arise. Uh, and those patients, if they get heart damage, can live, uh, can have really long-term 
uh, consequences from that. So a drug like Pysantrine is very worthwhile. Yeah, great. And, and what would your partnering approach be to, um, uh, say, a, a advanced phase three trials? So any company the size of Race or any, basically almost any listed ASX company shouldn't try and do phase three trials on their own. The, the, it's too expensive, it's too high risk, um, and the, the, the market's just not there for that. This is something where you need larger pharmaceutical companies to come in, partner with you in this in this process or purchase the entire package so this is something peter's got a lot of uh, familiarity with um, he was involved with virolytics which was just uh, in the early days of that and that was taken out last year for 500 million dollars just out of phase two so that's the type of approach that works best for a small company where small companies are good at doing early stage research uh, discover, making discoveries. What they're not so good at is taking something all the way through to uh, marketing. And certainly they're not very good at marketing in the main. Uh, so it's much better to partner with experts and those experts in this field are the large pharmaceutical companies. Yes, I think you can count the number of um, Australian drug manufacturers or drug developers who have gone all the way on on, on uh, one hand and yeah, yeah. There are a few fingers left over too. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And there's been a lot of disasters. So we have to just look at something, for for example, Air Expanders is a very recent example of a company that tried to do that, uh, took it all the way through phase three. This is obviously a medical device company, but yes, yeah. and, then, and then tried to sell it in the US and discovered actually selling is really difficult. Uh, you, if you don't have the infrastructure in place to sell a drug, um, then the chance of you being able to develop such uh, infrastructure is very low. And so it's not just all in the clinic where the risk is. In the marketplace is also a huge uh, area of risk as well. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so it's got to be um, it's got to be de-risked. Um, so uh, the race's uh, cash position, uh, you, you had about one point three million in the bank uh, as of the end of September. Um, and I think you've used a bit uh, since then. So. Um, uh, it, it, it looks like you could do with a bit more. Uh, what, 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 what's the plan there? Tim, let me uh, comment on that. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, I think it would be very worthwhile to ask Daniel what uh, brought him into race because he's an investor, not, not only our chief scientist, and I think that would be very useful for your listeners to hear. Well, Peter, that was actually my next question. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah, Daniel, I, I take it you did uh, you did due diligence on uh, almost every Aussie biotech and and and, and yes, race again. So uh, that that's exactly right. I actually I have a very low opinion of the Australian biotech industry in general, certainly the listed biotechs. Uh, there's an awful lot of lifestyle businesses out there that are never going to develop anything. Um, and uh, and so I generally don't invest in biotech. I invest in mining companies, uh, which everyone finds unusual. Uh, but I thought it was a bit un a bit silly of me. This my background's been in biotech. I've been in the industry for the last twenty years uh, to not actually be systematic about it and actually go through and make sure that there weren't any good companies on the ASX. So I started. Started at A and worked my way down doing due diligence on each one. Found lots of disasters. But when I got to race, I thought, wow, this is something really amazing. And I just started spending more and more time doing due diligence on it. And, um, and as I did uh, more and more due diligence, I thought this is 
they've actually got something special here. Mm. Um, I started buying on market. I thought I can't actually lose at the at the share price it was at the time. It was sub five cents. Uh, but then I thought, okay, maybe I looked at their cash position. It was getting pretty low. I could see they needed to do a raise. I uh, contacted Peter and said, are you interested in a cornerstone investor coming in? And after I think he worked out that I wasn't just pulling his leg and uh, wasn't a practical joker, uh, he was then very interested. And I then spent more time, signed off on an NDA, I spent more time going through all the detailed uh, technology and coming up with uh, an opinion that I thought this was actually a fantastic opportunity that I wanted to be involved with. So I uh, cornerstone the capital raise we did a couple of months ago uh, at a premium to the market. And the, the reason why was not because I uh, wanted to just end up with less of the company than I um, did, but it's because I thought that um, the market was really not seeing the value that was in this company. So, uh, and so I've, I now own about eight and a half percent of the company. Yes, and and with options and so forth, I'm actually closer now to ten percent of the company, uh, fully diluted. Okay, but it sounds like you might be good for a bit more if uh, if needs be. You would. Uh... Yes, well, I actually in the last raise, um, I wanted to take the entire raise, um, but. Uh, uh, the board wouldn't let me take it all. Uh, the, they said, oh, we have some other people that you know, would, would like to participate as well. So um, I've been buying on market. I'm far from being at the position where I think um, where I'd like to be from sort of a personal holding position. I think it's still even today, so it's, I think it was uh, $0.17 cents overnight, eight, been as high as 19 and a half. I still think it's massively undervalued. Uh, compared to its potential. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. All right. And, and finally, Dan, look, can I just sort of ask you what uh, Australian biotechs aren't getting right? Um, I mean, you, you mentioned they tend to be lifestyle companies, which is uh, not, a, uh, not a particularly uh, um, flattering description. Um, no, is, well, a lot of them... Is it probably clients or are they naive or... Uh, uh, there's a combination of different things. We, we don't have... We don't have the scale of the ecosystem like we say do in the mining industry where you've got thousands of companies, you've got a large number of people who've uh, worked in small and large mining companies to, to, I guess, learn the ropes. In biotech, we tend to be reinventing the wheel all the time, uh, which is not helpful, uh, combined with a market that's very unsophisticated. So the majority of investors in the biotech industry are you know, not don't understand the science or the medical background very well. There's a lot of mums and dad type investors who are punting um, and they can really be bamboozled by science. So there are, some, yes. there are some companies out there that will say and do anything to get a capital raise away. Um, you know, someone like me, I can see this as being, you know, I can see that it's garbage, but um, if you don't have the background, it's very difficult to know that's the case. So. Uh, we don't have anything similar to the sort of the jork regulations in the biotech industry, uh, which would be kind of helpful if we had something like that to try and prevent sort of the the loudest brokers making the most outrageous claims, getting all the attention. Yeah, I guess uh, sort of the claims do uh, eventually get peer reviewed, don't they? But it's a somewhat obscure process, isn't it? 
It is. And ultimately, it's a long way from when there's a capital raise. So you, a company will come out and say, we've cured this disease. Um, well, at least that's the way the market interprets it. And then later on, the, the asterisk gets noticed in the fine print, which is very far from actually what sort of is in the headlines. Um, and I think that's just, it's just the nature, a combination of an unsophisticated market. It's, it, it has improved. Uh, and there are the odd company like race that don't fall into that category. But unfortunately, um, there's far too many of those types of companies on the market out there. Yeah, great. Look, it's hard to know, isn't it? You mentioned uh, uh, Virolytics earlier. You know, they were taken over for $500 million, I think, from memory. From, uh, yeah, from, from memory. Were, I don't think, I don't think many people saw, saw that one coming. So, <laughs> No, there was something that was missed. The market uh, didn't perceive that as being particularly valuable, yet, Yet the real market, which is out there, which is the large pharmaceuticals companies, saw the technology as being extremely valuable. And so this is the disconnect where you get technologies that have zero value commercially um, into the industry getting very high market values uh, and vice versa, where you have uh, technologies that have extremely good commercial out, uh, value uh, receiving no value from the market at all. Yeah, so, yeah, it's fairly arbitrary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's some – I came across – and it's often so – there's some good companies, but often the valuations just are completely detached from reality. Mm-hmm. So you have a company that has actually got a good potential, but it's if it's been pushed up to a billion dollars uh, for an early stage buy tech, then all the value – all the long-term value is already built into the share price. That's not worth investing in, not because it's, you know, a bad technology or a bad company or anything like that. It's just mm-hmm. – just become massively overvalued. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, look. Uh, thanks. Uh, th- th- thanks for coming in and and, and, and having the chat. And um, I, I hope you, you do realise your potential and, uh, and, and and that you do become the next Viralytics. So uh, good luck. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Mm-hmm.